That was the J cut, and this is the K cut. I'm Rachel, and I am here with my co-host. Who's with me tonight? James here, digital media creator. I am host of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, and I also release music under the alias Boutique Paul. Uh, this is Andreas. I run Films Fatale, film website, host the K cut. Also do a Raptors, Toronto Raptors, NBA team podcast with my buddies on That's a Rap, which you can find on Podbean and all of those good places like you can find the K-Cut. And I also write for Films Fatale, and I will be appearing on a medieval series podcast in the next few weeks called Quarantine Quarantine. I'm actually playing a role as an actor, so keep an eye out for that. It's very funny. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. Why, why would you not tell me that before? I guess you were saving the news for now. That's really cool. Yeah, it's going to be pretty fun, I think. So are you playing like an actual person, like a, like a living figure? No, I'm playing, well, I don't want to really give away my part, but I'm playing a character yeah. in a medieval play, so to speak. Well, that's too bad, because then you could have been relevant for this week's episode, because this week's episode is the art of the biographical picture, more commonly known as the biopic. This was your topic, I believe, Me? Rachel? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I, I, I would guess one of you two, so you know, I'd either be right or wrong 50-50. Uh, why did you go with this one? Well, I had a particular movie in mind, and I think that's usually where my topics come from. I think of a movie and then think, how can I work it into a K-Cut episode? <laughs> so the one I wanted to talk about was Bound for Glory. Have either of you seen it? No. That sounds familiar. I'm going to check Guthrie, to Guthrie, 1976? No. I don't okay. think I have then. Well, it's uh, the story of Woody Guthrie. David Carradine plays him. He's excellent. And it was filmed by Haskell Wexler and then directed by Hal Ashby. So perfect people for every aspect of this movie. You know, Ashby's very, very good storyteller and Guthrie's a storyteller. So it works very well. And it was a pioneering use of the Steadicam. It was, I think, the first time they used Steadicam in the movies. Oh, wow. And it won for cinematography uh, at the Oscars. And it's very well regarded to this day. It's quite a slow film, though. So that can be hard to get used to. But... I saw it at 2.30 in the morning when I couldn't sleep on Turner Classic Movies, and it turns out that's the perfect way to watch it. It allows you to intimately see Woody Guthrie's life, his political side, his personal life, the world he came from, and also appreciate his beautiful music, but it also has a very epic tone to it. It covers a whole bunch of the United States, it covers a long period of time, and it's quite a long film. So it's got an enormous scope, but it's oddly intimate, and I think the Steadicam is what makes it that way. And Guthrie himself was a fascinating figure, very political, much more than the verses were taught of this land is your land will let on. So I would highly recommend it. Now, I know when you were coming up with this topic this week, you were looking at biopics that weren't just good, but maybe felt like they were different from other biopics. And, you know, you've detailed the fact that this is like an epic film, you know, it's one that's very beautifully done. Is there anything about this particular film that, separates it from the cookie cutter format of what a typical biopic that you know runs at the oscars that type of thing is there something that sets it apart enough that you were like wow i didn't know that biopics could be like this well first of all it's very visually stunning you know it's not just about getting the story across it's really as i said it has quite a leisurely pace so it really lets you get into woody guthrie's world and it lets you see the person for who he is um and again the pioneering aspect of the cinematography really allows you to both be a part of this one man's journey and see America as it was in the 1930s through the lens of this film. So it's an all-encompassing kind of movie. And the music, of course, can't be beat. It's a story in itself. 
I have heard of this one in passing, but it does seem like one that, as James would say, I'm going to have to check that out. It does sound yeah, really good. Yeah, i have to check that out. For film buffs, <laughs> it's a must, definitely. It was a landmark. Yeah, mm-hmm. like two and a half hours. It looks like it's got like a really good cast. Uh, Hal Ashby, as you pointed out, was a great filmmaker from the 70s. I think that there's a lot of things here that just look really good on paper. Absolutely. So what did you wind up picking, Andreas? Well, when you brought up this topic about biographical pictures, that felt very different. The first thing my mind went to, and it's because, and this isn't my pick, by the way, Love and Mercy, the the Brian Wilson biographical picture, where it's uh, both Paul Dano and John Cusack, who play different stages of Brian Wilson's life. The main lead songwriter and uh, producer and mastermind behind the Beach Boys, especially during their, their fantastic years. I couldn't believe how, like, outside of the box it was. But then I was thinking, I was like, no, but, like, that's not, I know for sure I've seen ones that, like, really take it a step even further. And then quickly afterwards was like, hang on a second, there's another, like, a guy who appears at the Oscars often. And it actually baffled me that I didn't realize that this guy dealt solely with biopics. Because if you think of this guy, you'll see. Yeah, because I'm not doing Love and Mercy. I, I, I picked somebody else ultimately. But this guy, and you know who it is, Rachel, he only does biopics. And it's strange to think about that because... When you think of Julian Schnabel, you think of art. You mm-hmm. think of like very visually enriched films. Like, But then you're like, wait a second. His debut is Basquiat, which I don't need to really explain that further. He's done um, At Eternity's Gate, which is about Vincent Van Gogh. Before Night Falls, which is, was his big breakthrough in the award season. Ronaldo Arenas. And then the film that I'm going to pick for mine today, which what else is there outside of morale, which it's not bad. <laughs> Possibly the most inventive biopic I have ever seen, and it had to be this. I love Love and Mercy, but it had to be this. One of my favorite films of the 2000s, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. A very visually arresting, beautiful, heart-wrenching, artistic take on the the, la- the later stages, let's say, of the life of Jean-Dominique Blaby, who was... Um, the, the main editor journalist for, for L basically he was like a massive figurehead there. And I, I, okay. So you've seen it, Rachel, right? I actually have not. Oh, what? Oh my God. Cause I know you I were know. so familiar with this. I just know it's reputation. I read a lot about it, but I actually haven't gotten around to seeing it yet. I know. <laughs> and, and James, I have a feeling you have not seen it either. Cause I think we've, we've discussed Schnabel before and I have not seen this. Okay. So I don't want to spoil too much, but what makes this very interesting is that, do you if you know like the basic premise? No. Yes, um, he's he's disabled and he communicates through through blinking. Blinking, yes, that's it. And doesn't he wind up writing in this way? Well, that, that's what this is. This is based on his memoir. Off the pod, we were discussing about adaptations and stuff. And technically, a lot of biopics are adaptations because they're based on memoirs or, or you know biographical novels. This was based on his actual memoir. So, which was actually called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. It's a metaphor that he created in the book. The first, I think it's like the first half an hour is literally from his perspective. And you can hear his inner thoughts because he's unable to speak. And that was just something that I'll never forget alone. Where it's, you're in the mind of somebody who's paralyzed basically throughout their entire body outside of like parts of your face. Mainly a single eyelid in this case. And... 
This was a result of him having a major stroke. And to visit that when it's this realization that you're in the hospital and this is how you're going to be for the rest of your life, it's some really challenging stuff. And the way that Schnabel depicts it is just incredible. And after this this moment, which I don't want to speak too much about because, you know, the more you see it develop, the more you're like your heart just rips in half. Then it starts cutting between flashbacks and the present and dreams and daydreams. It basically becomes this huge tapestry of everything that's running through his mind, past, present, real fiction. It really is one of the most gorgeous films I've ever seen. It's crazy because there are a lot of filmmakers who are artistic or they dabble in art house. But to see like an actual artist first, second filmmaker like Julian Schnabel, that's what he is. He's actually an artist. He does like paintings and like uh, broken plates and, and you know, that type of like um, a postmodern sculpture work. To see that, like this, these types of visions from somebody like that, oh, it really is like one of the most inventive biopics I've ever seen. Possibly like the most I've ever seen. That sounds really good. I'll check that out. <laughs> yes. And didn't it get a lot of unexpected attention from the international film crowd, you know, especially on this side of the Atlantic? It actually got nominated for Best Director. Which uh, was a bunch of things surprising at the, Oscars. at the time. Yeah, especially because there wasn't the 10 category. It was still the 5. And let's look at what else was nominated that year. Because 2007 was like a Very crazy strong. year. Uh, there Will Be Blood, No Country for Old Men, Atonement, The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. It was stacked. Yeah. Is it Robert Ford? Howard Ford? I don't remember. Robert. Uh, it is Robert. Okay. That 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 name is just too long. He's the coward Robert, so. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. So, point is, a lot of stuff came out that year, and we're not even touching the surface of this thing, but The Diving Bell and the Butterfly is still one of the best films of that year, and it got nominated for screenplay, which for a foreign film is massive, cinematography, editing. If this was when they opened up the list two years later, guaranteed it would have been nominated for Best Picture which is pretty big. I know Julian Schnabel is not necessarily a foreign filmmaker himself. He's actually American, but he dabbles in a lot of like world cinema nonetheless. And he tries to be very authentic with it. And if I made a list of the greatest performances, like top 100, Matthew Almarique as Jean-Dominique Bobby, he's absolutely on that list. So I can't recommend that enough, but we're going to move on now to James. What is your biographical picture and why? Well, for my pick, I decided to go with, before his return, the intended swan song by Steven Soderbergh, Behind the Candelabra. I love that one. Yep. It's the movie that's based on the memoir written by Scott Thorson, who was Liberace's lover. Hmm. And it stars Michael Douglas as Liberace and Matt Damon as Scott Thorson. And I have to say, you haven't lived until you see Michael Douglas play Liberace because he does so amazing in this movie. It's also quite a different role for him than what we're used to seeing. Yeah, based on his other roles, I would never have thought of Michael Douglas as Liberace, but he really pulls it off. It's also very, almost a very vulnerable performance from each of them because there's a really weird dynamic with this relationship. Like you find out all the weird things where it's like almost kind of like this weird grooming thing he was doing with them. And, you know, he ended up adopting him as his son and he had him get plastic surgery to look more like him, like he was his son, but they were lovers. And it's just like, Mm -hmm. you know, you just see this whole dynamic play out and it's really weird. But, you know, I'd say the camera works great. Also just, you know, certain shots like at the end where I think it's towards the end. 
is this one where they have him, I don't know, I think they do wire work with Michael Douglas and he's kind of like floating around or something like that to kind of give this like whimsical kind of setting. But yeah, it's just an overall really good film and just, you know, something I didn't expect from either of them. Because when I first heard about it, I was like, a movie about Liberace? Okay, I have to see this. But when you see it, it's like, wow, this is really captivating. And it was a lot more moving than I initially pictured it. I thought it was going to be more about performance and becoming the character in, in a sort of stagey way. Yeah, and Liberace's career kind of took the back seat as the subject, which I found really interesting because mm-hmm. he really didn't mention that except for like flashbacks, you know, when he mentions, oh, I was the first person to look indirectly into the camera on television and they have the flashback of it. And yeah, it's just really, really good watch. I just, I recommend it to everybody. And I think it was a fitting way for Steven Soderbergh to go out, even though he just came back a few years later. Yeah, I hate to say this because I don't usually on this show. I'm going to have to check that out. I still have not seen it yet. Oh, it's so good. It is definitely worth a watch. I've been meaning to. I just never got around to it. I like Matt Damon as well. It's like it's Matt Damon. It's like the um, the the author of of the memoir, right? Yeah, he, yeah, he plays Scott Thorson. He measures up to Douglas in every way too. Like they they both play off each other well. Yeah, it's just such an interesting casting choices. Uh, is Rob Lowe in it as well, or James? Let me check the cast real quick. I'm trying to think. Yeah. yes, he is in it. He wasn't it. Okay. Yeah. See, like that. That's like all I know about it. Is like you know various people in this. Oh, okay, okay. I thought I was I was under the impression that it was actually uh, like a miniseries, but no, it's just an HBO release. It's just it's still a movie. Yeah, cool. it was just a mm-hmm. feature. Oh, Debbie Reynolds is in this movie also. I forgot about that. Oh yeah. Oh, my heart. Rest in peace, Debbie Reynolds. Oh yeah, Dan Aykroyd's in it. Yeah, I keep, I, I totally forgot who was all in this. Yeah, it's just a really good picture. It was also interesting that it was an HBO exclusive. Mm-hmm. HBO's done some really cool movies in the last decade. Well, like their series, I feel like people felt limitless with HBO. This is before um, Netflix really took off as like an original service of, of television shows and, and films. I feel like people could still rely on HBO to do like whatever vision they wanted without being stymied by like, you know, political correctness or sponsorship and all of that stupidity. So uh, I feel like perhaps if this was Soderbergh's supposed swan song, that's another thing I knew about it. It was supposed to be his final film. Nobody's retired until they're gone. Exactly. Oh, yeah, exactly. But like, perhaps he wanted to go out on a bang and said, HBO is going to do exactly what I want. So, which is funny because he just went from that to doing a TV show for stars for two seasons. Right. Yeah. Oh, well, obviously his, uh, his hiatus didn't last very Wait, long. Was it stars? Well, I'm glad we still have his work here. Yes. Oh no. It was Cinemax, not stars. He did something else with stars. I think. Oh yeah. I, I couldn't tell you. I, I don't know as much about Soderbergh as I should. I know a lot of his stuff, but like, I mean, the guy's directed a lot. <laughs> like, I think one of the also hallmarks of the movie is this movie shows Soderbergh's trust in his actors. Yeah. Because he said that a lot of the time he doesn't have to do that much. Once they're in the zone, he leaves them alone. And you can tell for this one where it's like every everything is just on point. I'm going to have to check that out. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but now we're getting to, into the, the next phase of, of this episode where, you know, we just looked at biopics that felt very different. They stood out from the crowd, perhaps because of their filmmakers, perhaps because of their stars or their subjects, whether it's Woody Guthrie um, or Liberace. But now we haven't done one of these in a while. Now it's pitch time. We're going to pitch 
our biographical pictures that we would like to be done of certain people. And if we're feeling so inclined, who's going to make this thing, who's going to be in it, who's going to be the person or subject that we're, we're interested in. So, uh, Rachel, what is your pitch for the ultimate biographical picture that has yet to be made? I want a biopic of Betty Ford. Okay. So she was first lady of the United States, of course, when she was married to Gerald Ford, who was only president for about two years in between Nixon and Carter. And she was a fascinating woman. Do you guys know much about her? I do not. A little bit, but for our listeners, please tell more. She was a chorus girl originally, and she was divorced when she married Mr. Ford, which is a big deal in the 70s. And she was very outspoken about the Equal Rights Amendment at the time and abortion rights, which for a Republican, for any first lady now, but especially a Republican first lady, which is, tends to be the conservative party, that's a lot. And she was open about struggling with alcoholism and going through breast cancer. So here's this woman who was not afraid to be who she was. And even though she wasn't first lady for very long, she left a huge impression on the American public. And she really helped demystify a lot of the issues of the day. So I picture the movie directed by Jean-Marc Vallée. And because I think he's got the biopic down, he did Dallas Buyers Club and everything. And I see Tracy Allman as Betty Ford. That is a name that I have not heard in ages. Maybe I'm just going off her performance in Mrs. America, where she played Betty Friedan, but A, she definitely has the 70s style down, and B, she really does well in this sort of outspoken role as a person who is assertive and who sticks by her own opinions, but she can also show the vulnerability and her internal struggles with this sort of thing. So I think she could play Betty as a very multifaceted woman, and I would look forward to seeing what she could do with it. She could bring the sort of humor to the part as well. I don't know. I think I think she would do quite well. I think she's very underrated as as an actress. I know she's celebrated because of her her impressions and her her ability to do comedy, and obviously her her variety show, which ultimately was the birthplace of The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. But. Um, as a standalone actress, I don't think she gets enough credit. No, I absolutely. I think she's very and talented. I would recommend Mrs. America to see the full range of her acting ability because she really did well in that role. Yeah, I think that's that's a great pick. Or do you have any more? Uh, uh, like, do you, do you have somebody who's going to play her her ex husband, former president, or no? I haven't like cast that? Gerald yet, but I, I assume they would find somebody of that right age range and style. <laughs> What's important is the Betty. Exactly. Fair enough. Cool. I, I like it. James, what do you think? I'd watch it. I'd watch it too. What was your pick, James? So I decided to go with, I would like a movie, a biopic about Prince and his time with the revolution. That would be cool. Specifically that. That's cool. I like that. Specifically that area. I wouldn't want an entire, you know, life spanning, you know, grandiose picture i want something a little more isolated so i i would like to see that primarily because you can tell there was a certain dynamic with that band and how he led it so i kind of would like to see just a glimpse of it because you know he was very private you don't really see a lot of behind the scenes with him so to even, even if it's like a little bit dramatized and you know not exactly what happened i would like to see something that shows how that whole outfit operated Who's going to be making this thing? Now, that's the thing I was trying to think of. I thought, who could capture this? 
I think that it would be a good opportunity for David Fincher to get back with um, Aaron Sorkin. Okay, that could get interesting. Because I think that I think Fincher would be able to capture the tone because, especially with how neurotic Prince was with contr- the control of his art and his proteges and the people he worked with, I think he could kind of capture that because while he made a lot of this great art, it's like he had this really almost I don't want to say dictator, but he was very controlling with every aspect of his of his work. And I think that Fincher would be able to bring it out and kind of see not necessarily a dark side, but something that's a little bit more, I don't know what to call it. I don't, it just seems like something David Fincher would be able to tackle. Now I I was trying to think of who could play Prince. That's the million dollar question. Yeah, that's tough. The only person I could think of. And because the problem was, I, I thought it was like, should I go with someone who looks like him or someone who could just pull off the role? Because I, I started thinking about Steve jobs and how, uh, Fassbender. Yes, Michael Fassbender. When he played Steve Jobs, he didn't look like Steve Jobs, but he pulled off the role well. So I was thinking Bruno Mars could play Prince. I was thinking something actually similar, where it's like this guy was given a chance to be Jimi Hendrix, and I don't think he, it was like it, it, I don't think it came to fruition like it was supposed to. But maybe this could be a second chance, Andre three thousand, Andre Benjamin. You know that might that might work too. Either of those. See, I thought about that, but I was like. Mm. Bruno Mars has a height. Prince, yeah, Prince he's a short. height, and I think him being a little bit younger yeah. would have probably make for a better pick, considering I think Prince is only in his mid-20s, or early early to... I think it was early 20s we started Even the revolution. Earlier, yeah. He was very young when he started making music. He was like a late teenager. Yeah, but I would also want to take the approach where, you know, the revolution is almost more the highlight themselves and not just Prince. Like, Prince is there, but it's, you know, more so the dynamic with all of them. And that's the, those are the parts that I, I don't know who I'd pick. I, I think my biggest concern would be who would play Wendy and Lisa. Mm-hmm. Mm, fair point. Well, luckily I don't think we've all thought that far yet. So, well, I, I'd say I, I'd want Brie Larson to play one of them. Okay. Well, I, I'm a big fan of her. So I think like whenever, right. Whenever she can be cast, cast her. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I, I just think it's like something, you know, because there's not enough of that. I don't think there's anything. There's not enough behind the scenes anything in his career because of how private he was. I mean, you know, he barely did interviews. Right. So that could be also like an incentive to get creative, not like through slander, but like what could this have been like? Perhaps. And that's why I want Aaron Sorkin to write the screenplay, because he's he's very good at dramatizing something without completely destroying the nature of what's going on. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think I think that's that's very solid. I, I'd see it. Absolutely. Cool. Well, mine is one that I personally have been dying to exist for ages to the point where if I ever had the time, I would actually have written this. This was like my dream biopic. And the only reason why I'm actually bringing it up now is because I feel like after like 10 years or so of marinating and not doing it, I feel like. I, I actually believe somebody's beaten me to the punch, so it's too late. My, in my opinion, the perfect biopic has is starting to be made. So I don't know if it's got like the right cast and everything, but like it's being made. So for years, for absolute years, I've been dying for there to be a story about Veronica Bennett, otherwise known as Ronnie Spector, who is the the lead singer of the Ronettes with uh, with her sister, and I believe it was like a. a, a friend or cousin i oh yeah yeah. uh uh, nedra tally was was a cousin of both estelle and veronica and um the ronettes are 
one of my favorite 60s girl groups. In fact, probably my favorite. I absolutely adore them. And her name's Ronnie Spector, because if you don't know, she was famously married initially to Phil Spector. And good God, that that woman has had a life. They've all, all three of them, all of the Ronettes have had a life, but that woman has had a life from, if uh, neither of you or the listeners at home know, like the, like the particulates, basically, they were basically about to be as big as the Beatles, but the female version, they were actually on tour with the Beatles. And Phil Spector, we all know as a psychopath. I love him as a producer. I don't care that he's gone. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. care what he's like as a person. He's he's garbage filth. person. He he purposefully destroyed all of their careers, especially his wife's, to the point of actually like like actually locking her in their mansion, and like she couldn't even leave. She was like a prisoner. She's like the lead singer of the group, and she couldn't even tour with them. Imagine if Diana Ross didn't do the Supremes. It just doesn't make any sense single-handedly killed their careers that's why they only ever had like one major album so you know there's all of that stuff and uh, estelle wound up being homeless and having major mental health issues the third girl nedra ended up becoming like a born-again christian to combat everything um and now she's part of like this really really religious group ronnie specter herself who still goes by that name, by the way. That's why I call her that. Um, Ronnie Spector herself fought tooth and nail to still be relevant with music, whether she was collaborating with her friends in the, in the Ramones, whatever. And basically their entire lives were fighting against the Phil Spector machine. They only got inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame once he got arrested for manslaughter because he kept refusing the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to allow them to be nominated. That's so tragic. Like, it's insane. It's insane the amount of crap that they've gone through as one of the greatest girl groups of all time. And just, I think for something like this, you need like another guy who's fantastic with biopics, as I've learned once, and I'm hoping he's going to do again. I loved Jackie. I hope his Princess Diana picture is going to be great. I'm going Pablo Lorraine making this thing. I think he would capture the intensity of this type of thing but also the the period of which it happened the 60s and afterwards i think he would be fantastic and for ronnie specter i need somebody who can sing really well i need somebody who can camouflage really well i'm going cynthia revo that that is my ronnie specter oh that would be wonderful if anybody whoever's making this thing because i know they're actually making a ronette's biopic now Cast Cynthia Revo, you're not going to be disappointed. As for filmmakers, go with whatever you want. Pablo Lorraine's my suggestion, but Cynthia Revo, I thought long and hard about it. She's like perfect, in my opinion. Maybe in a couple of years, we'll be talking about this come Oscar time. They stole my idea. <laughs> like, you know, like, they, <laughs> like everything was like exactly what I said. But um, yeah, this was like my dream project I always wanted to work on. I remember seeing it on, on Facebook. It's like, after uh, Phil Spector died, I think it was like, you know, the floodgates opened. We're going to make this picture. It's like, I, I always wanted that and it just never happened. But that's my own fault for dilly-dallying. So if you have an idea, do it if you can. And speaking of what advice I can give, it's time for our weekly recommendations. So we're all going to give recommendations. James, what is your weekly recommendation for this week? You know, I was kind of thinking of biopics and I'm going to go with the... Okay. miniseries jackson's okay. the american uh, in american dream it's a five hour long miniseries detailing the career of the, the jackson five okay that sounds cool it's something that 
it's something that would often get syndicated on VH1 and I'd spend all day watching it just because it was on. But it it does a really good job of just telling the story. It also um, goes through each, you know, highlight is each phase of Michael. And um, it's also one of the breakout roles of uh, Jason Weaver. And for those who don't know who he was, he was actually the singing voice for Simba in The Lion King. Oh, okay. He also had, um, he's had other small roles, but then he also had a role on the... Disney Channel show Smart Guy. Oh, it's that guy. Yeah, that. Yeah, he played. He played. Um, what's his name's older brother. Yeah. So yeah, it, it's just it's just really fun watch. Also, Angela Bassett plays the mother. That's awesome. And I I absolutely adore Angela Bassett. I think she's one of the greatest to ever do it. Yeah, it's just really well made. Yeah, just great performances, great writing. It's it's a long watch though. I mean, I, I was watching it on TV with commercials, so you know it doubled the runtime. It ran for like seven or eight hours or something like that. But yeah, that's my pick. Cool. That sounds good to me. Sounds like a I'm good one. Have to check that out. Yeah. Have you noticed how much we've spoken about music this evening in all of our picks? Uh, I, I may or may not continue that as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Rachel, what is what is your pick? Is yours also music based? No, I'm hopping off the biopic train, and I'm going with Martha Marcy May Marlene. Oh, that's underrated. Yeah, it's from 2007, and it's got John Hawks and Elizabeth Olsen in what was her big break. And so I think she just missed out on getting Oscar nominated for it. It's a very, very intense, and I should say quite disturbing, look at being in a cult and how that messes with your mind and then on recovery from said cult. And Olsen is astonishing. She just, she deserved every bit of success she got from that movie because she plays all the conflicted emotions so well and you never quite know where she is. And I would just highly recommend that movie. Was that 2007? I thought that 11, was like 2011. 20. Oh, there we go. For a second, I was like, Good Lord, I had no idea that movie no, was that old. Like I felt, I felt right. ancient myself. Um, yeah, and I feel like a lot of Marvel films really pick fantastic performers because of like films like this. Yeah, that's exactly where Elizabeth Olsen got, not, got noticed. Mm-hmm. What a fantastic performance. I'd like to see more work like this by her. I'm going to go back to the music thing, but I'm not doing a biopic. I'm actually doing a documentary, the TAMI show, which is from the 60s. And, you know, I got talking about, you know, the Ronettes. And once I thought the Supremes, I was like, okay, I feel like I know what my recommendation is going to be. Uh, it's all it is. All it is is just a performance. That's it for like two hours. But it's like uh, in order, uh, Chuck Berry, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Marvin Gaye, Leslie Gore. The Beach Boys, Billy J. Kramer, and the Dakotas, the Supremes, as I brought up before, James Brown on the Famous Flames, and it ends with the Rolling Stones. What a fantastic lineup. And you have this crazy audience going nuts, some rather developed uh, cinematic techniques for its time, like you know crane shots or like really elaborate sets with just like teenagers and dancers just going nuts. Uh, it's one of my favorite music related documentaries. It, it doesn't really tell you much outside of a time period and what was going on and what pop culture was like and music and everything. That's all you need. It's just beautiful music, incredible performances for two hours. So that's why I picked the TMI show. Wow. I think that we've got a pretty solid lineup there. Yeah. Whether it's films that we have uh, hand selected or ones that we would like to be made. I think this has been a very 
very successful run. But for now, that was the K-Cut, and we are going into the L-Cut.